The scripture today is Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You may be seated. Amen. All right, so here we go into uh, Ephesians. We tread. We were here um, last week briefly when we were out at the park. Uh, we just kind of did a quick summary and overview of Ephesians and who this letter is to. So this is kind of our first time jumping actually into the text and uh, so we're going to be in Ephesians, uh, I believe, through June, all the way from here through June. I think maybe our last week is the first week of July. Um, and so this will be our, our course of study for the next several weeks. It'll be our course of study in city groups as we gather together. Um, we posted a blog this week that had some links in there to a book uh, that might be helpful to grab uh, because our city group leaders are going to be using it to journey through the book of Ephesians. Um, it's called Ephesians for You. Um, our city group leaders are going to have a couple copies, and I believe by, by next Sunday. Jason, are you catch, catching the paperbacks in the mail this week? Are they supposed to be in this week? Uh, maybe. Uh, maybe. Depends on. Oh, geez. Okay. So we, we did grab uh, a handful of paperbacks just to have on hand uh, for you as well. So if you want one, we'll, we'll have them hopefully next week. Um, yeah, if UPS moves quick enough or if Amazon moves quick enough. So, um, if, but if you'd like to, just get on that uh, on our website, on the blog, click a link and buy it for yourself and rush order it if you're in a hurry like we usually are. Um, so th it'll, be, it'll just be a really helpful study and the, um, the chapters of that book are broken down basically in the way that we're breaking down the series as far as kind of the, the verse chunks that we're taking uh, one at a time. So anyways, all of that, I, I skipped saying welcome back to the PAL. Um, thanks for your patience as we refigure ourselves into this space. Uh, we have displaced a lot of things and are sh have shared a lot of things, and so we've got to go get those things back, um, one of them being our screen. Uh, I actually have no idea where it is. So uh, somebody just bought us a new one, and it'll be here in time for next week. Yay. Um, so we're in the PAL for now. Pray as we continue to seek options. A uh, uh, couple of us saw another spot this week uh, that could be a possibility um, in the coming months. It's not something we can move into 
uh, until summer at the earliest, uh, possibly fall, if that's even an option that we go with. So uh, we're continuing to search around and uh, try to find ourselves something that uh, we can endure in and be in for a length of time. So let's dig in. Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to read these verses again. Um, These are some of the most glorious, weighty, and thick words in all of the New Testament. Uh, And so it is quite a first plunge into Ephesians. So let's read it again, and then let's beg Jesus and the Holy Spirit to help us understand all of this. Here we go. Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him... We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we humble ourselves this morning, and we admit and confess uh, that you are higher than us, that you are smarter than us, that you are more powerful than us, that you are limitless and we are limited, that you are eternal and we are temporary, that you are all-powerful And that, God, we struggle to get up in the morning. (laughs) There is nothing, absolutely nothing, that is too difficult for you. Jesus confessed and proclaimed the truth of God to his disciples that nothing is impossible to God. Lord, that is, at times, for us, unfathomable because so much is impossible for us. And this morning, we come to a glorious, though weighty passage, a significant moment in seeing and understanding redemptive history that you inspired Paul the Apostle to write for the church in Ephesus and the churches in Asia and for this church today. And I pray, God, that our hearts and our minds would be opened by your Holy Spirit to hear 
And that, God, we would just be overwhelmed by the beauty and majesty and glory of a God who has loved us before time began. And that we would see what that means both for us and for you. God, it is tremendous and glorious, though it is tough. And so we pray that you would have your way and that you would open the mouth of this short-sighted fool and help me to speak your truth and set away from my mouth anything that is not your truth. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So Ephesians, as we talked about last week, is a letter to uh, a church that Paul was involved in starting. And we saw in Acts 18 and 19 a little bit last week that the gospel coming to Ephesians caused stirring amongst the people, both those who uh, had kind of a religious background and understanding and those who were irreligious or were of opposite religion. They were uh, Greeks and Romans in their thoughts of deity. Um, and so we know that Paul in that place in Ephesians was dealing with both Jew and Gentile, right? Which at that moment in history was like saying the most opposite things that you could say right? It's like saying whale and tiger. I mean, like, completely opposite. Everything about them is different. They're just so utterly in different worlds that the declaration that Ephesians brings is that God has done such a work in history to bring these two utter opposites together as one in unity under Jesus Christ. That's what Ephesians and the theology of Paul in Ephesians is all about, and it's stated very clearly in verse 10 uh, and also in verse 4, and we'll see it in other places, that everything is brought together into unity in Christ Jesus, and that the work to do that is not my work, it's not your work. It's not the work of the Jew, and it's not the work of the Gentile. It's not the work of any kingdom in any place or any person from any tribe. It is the work of God and God alone to the praise of his glorious grace. We saw a couple weeks ago in Revelation 5 when there was a scroll in the arms or in the hands of he who sat upon the throne, and an angel cried out, worthy is the lamb to open the scroll. It's very much a similar declaration in Ephesians that it is Christ and Christ alone who can bring all things in all history together under himself. That is the power and the glory of Christ and his work. And so really, uh, there's, there's a section towards the end of our, our passage here where Paul talks about we and you. Okay, it's in verse 12 and in verse 13. And there's a we and a you that I just talked about, the whale and the tiger, the Jew and the Gentile, that Paul is trying to help the Ephesians understand here at the beginning that both of those things, both of those polar opposites, those peoples, those groups, have been brought together by the work of Jesus. And so it's helpful for us to understand a little bit of the story of the we before we talk about the you, 
so that we can know fully what it is that Paul's kind of talking about here. And so the we is the Jew, and the we often begins with Abraham and his story. Because after all, most of the Jews would call themselves children of Abraham. Right? That was a, a marker of who these people were. They, they sometimes prided themselves on that reality that we were called. We saw Jesus was, was kind of confronted by some of these people, and Jesus was like, you're sons of Satan. And they were like, wait a minute, what? We are kids of Abraham, yo. Like they, were, they would pride themselves on that. They would park themselves in that lane, and they would say, we are Jews. We belong to this uh, nation of people that God has made. And so the question then for us is, well, how did God make that nation? And that question is of utter importance as we kind of unpack some of the big theological truths of this passage in Ephesians 1. And so look with me at Genesis 12, because there we'll see what it is that God did to bring about this nation to make for himself a people that later would pride themselves on being the sons of Abraham. So we go all the, back, all the way back to Genesis 12, and really most good uh, teaching in the Bible is going to really track all throughout Scripture, right? We don't see scriptural truths just in one place and then say this is the one thing that talks about that. We see the story woven through the fibers of redemptive history, and we see it happening from Genesis to Revelation. And so as we speak about some of these grand theological truths this morning, we'll see them attached to the whole story. So uh, to, to kind of get the setting here, um, pre-Genesis 12, we see creation, we see a fall, uh, we see evil and murder and corruption introduced to mankind. We see then mankind follow a path of absolute destruction to the point where God makes a declaration about the people of the world and he says, I'm sorry I made them. I mean, it's that bad. There's so much corruption and so much evil and so much wickedness on the earth that God is brokenhearted at what his creation has done with what he made. We have, they, we, same, we <laughs> have utterly taken everything that is good and precious and glorious that God has given us and we have bent it out of shape. We have broken it, we have marred it, we have ruined creation. So that's a, much of the story of Genesis. Of course, we have the flood uh, within which God pulls Noah and his family out and rebegins the uh, human race with Noah and his family. And we see again, after Noah and his family are rescued from the uh, storm and they are kept safe from the flood, uh, pretty much as soon as dry ground is around and they could put up a tent, Noah sins in the tent. <laughs> he gets drunk and hammered and passes out and shames his entire family. It's like, all right, great, awesome starting place, right? This is the material that God, who created everything good, this is what he has to deal with because of the broken rebellion and the fall of, uh, the, the sinful fall of mankind. And then in uh, some of the following chapters, mankind is continuing to kind of uh, spread out and grow, and we see the nations uh, emerge from Noah. And then in chapter 11, there's this tower in Babel that is erected for the sake of the glory of man. Men get together and say, let's pump this place up. Let's make ourselves look good. Let's create a name for ourselves. Let's build this giant city because nothing is impossible for us. We are great. 
and God confuses the language of the people at Babel to show that he will not compete with man for glory because he alone is worthy of glory. And when those people begin to spread, they begin to worship regional gods. Some of them worship a moon god, some of them worship a sun god, some of them worship a tree god and a plant god and a woman god, and they just create all these deities. And out of that multiplication, all of the, the many deities of the known world at that time, we see Genesis chapter 12 where God calls Abraham away from all of that brokenness. So in verse 1 through 3 of chapter 12, says this, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so we see in this new beginning of a new people that Abraham is chosen amongst this wicked world, this dark and rebellious world, not because of anything in him, but because it was God's plan to choose him and to call him. People everywhere were worshiping themselves. They were worshiping other gods. Abraham was born in a family that was worshipers of moon gods, and they were seeking to make sense of life without even looking toward God, their creator. And out of this all, Abraham was called. And what do we see here in the calling of Abraham? Well, we see that Abraham was called out of all of that. He was called out of the wickedness of the world and the rebellion of the world. And he was blessed by God. And he was told, through you, I'm going to bless all of the families of the world. I'm going to pull you out of the darkness and the sin and the corruption of the world. I'm going to make you my own. I'm going to put my blessing on you. And through you, I will bless everybody, all of the undeserving peoples of the world. And so through the whole Old Testament, we see the building of this nation, the making of this people that are the many numbered uh, tribes of uh, Abraham and his family. And again and again, we see that this nation is chosen by God among other nations in the world, not because they're big and strong, not because they're spe spe uh, spectacularly righteous, not because they've got a bigger army or a better ruler or a, or a more pure heritage. It's simply because God has said, I have chosen you as my people because it was part of his plan to do so. And this nation grew, and of course we know their journey goes through Egypt, right, where they're slaves, and God redeems them from that, and God leads them through the wilderness eventually to inherit the land of Canaan where he sets up the kingdom, and what do they do there? They rebel against God. We see this same journey that is so true of our own hearts that again and again they are called by God, they are named his, and they return repeatedly to their own wicked ways. And we see God preserve this nation, like we talked about in the book of Daniel recently in our series. They went to Babylon, and God held them there. 
And through that journey into Babylon, he purified them. He called them back to Jerusalem. And God's fame continued to spread through the world because of these people. And of course, ultimately, this nation was the conduit through which God's blessing would come to the world. And the way that blessing would come to the world is through Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ was the son of David, was of the seed of Abraham, was connected to this lineage, this nation, this people. And he was the way that God was going to bring blessing to all peoples, all the families, to fulfill that promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. And so Paul opens this letter to the Ephesians with this amazing poem of praise to God, which, by the way, this is like one big long sentence in Greek. Paul is so excited, he forgets to use periods. Like, he's just like, oh my God, God is glorious, he's doing all these amazing, I was just like, talk about run-on sentences. I mean, I think I'm bad sometimes, but Paul's just like full of praise, and his heart is erupting in honor and glory to God because of the work that has happened, and he's proclaiming that there is the working out of an amazing plan through Jesus Christ to bless all of the kinds of the people in the world. We've used that phrase again and again intentionally and on purpose that God has chosen out of all of the kinds of the people to make for himself a people named with the name of Jesus. And in this letter, as Paul opens it, we discover that it was God's will to choose people and that that choice of God didn't just go back to the time of Abraham. It didn't just go back to post-Babel where the world was a mess and God said, I'm going to call Abraham out, choose him amongst all the people and call him mine and bless him and make a nation out of him. God's choosing, Paul says, goes back further than Genesis 12, right? And our natural conclusion is like, okay, well then Genesis 1. It goes further back than that, Paul says. In verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. God's plan to bring blessing to all of the families of the earth through Abraham was fulfilled in Jesus Christ through whom God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That phrase, in the heavenly places, Paul uses many times in Ephesians, and we're going to dig into it a lot more next week, and we'll also touch on it in a couple weeks, but it's a, it's a phenomenal truth that's declared about us that says these are permanent and established things in the realm of God and his angels. That God has done a work in that place that is so glorious and so final that it cannot be shaken and it cannot be changed. And in this work to bless all of the families of the earth because of Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ, he has chosen us to be holy and blameless amidst a world of dark and sinful rebellion. 
And this choosing of Abraham that was in Genesis chapter 12 helps kind of set the setting or helps kind of us understand the analogy of God's work to choose and predestine from before the foundations of the world like Paul talks about in this letter. The setting of Abraham was it was a rebellious world. The setting of Abraham was that there were people turning to every other God but the true God. The setting of Abraham was the people worshiping themselves and their own greatness and the wisdom of man and the ingenuity of man and the pride of man. That's where their boast was in the midst of that dark and sinful world. Abraham was called by God and so it is with his calling of us. We're in a dark world. That's what Romans 5.12 says, that it is sinful and broken. John 3.19 tells us that we love darkness, not the light. Isaiah 1, the prophet unfolds the truth that there are a rebellious and wicked people strewn throughout the earth, that no one is calling on God, that Romans 3.11 says no one seeks after God. And Psalm 10.4 repeats the same refrain, that no one is humble and dependent on their creator. Isaiah 53.6, like we read a couple weeks ago, we like sheep have gone astray. All, all have turned to their own way. In pride, every human being from all times and every nation, every family and every tribe, we have been born in iniquity and we decide by our own will to live our lives out ignoring God. This is the setting of the man's decision to rebel against God. We ignore him, we dismiss his existence, we follow our own way, we choose for ourselves rather than listen to our creator who tells us the way that we ought to live. This is the setting from which we see the declarations of God's work to make a people for himself. This was the state of the world in Ephesians 1.5, back up two words in front of the beginning of verse 5, says this, In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. God chose out of that muck, out of that rebellious lot, out of the whole of mankind destined to run itself off a cliff, God chose kids to adopt them. Ephesians 2.2 says that we were among the sons of disobedience. The next verse calls us children of wrath. God chose amongst that lot to make kids his own. He set his affections on us even though we were in rebellion. Romans 5.8 tells us clearly that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. And there's this insane story in the Old Testament 
the prophet Hosea. If you've never read it, read it. It's unbelievable. God calls this prophet, and he says, listen, I, I need you to do something as an illustration of how I love. And Hosea's like, well, that, that sounds pretty cool. I get to love like God. I'm in. Sign me up. God says, you know that woman that everybody knows? And by meaning, by saying everybody knows, I mean everybody knows her. She's out at the gate late at night. Gomer? Yes, Hosea. Gomer. I want you to go and marry her. He lost his microphone on it. Okay, Gomer, the prostitute. That Gomer. Yes, Hosea. I want you to love like me, and that means go and make her your wife. Oh, but she... She went... Mm. What? Go love her. Go call her yours. Go take her home and start a life with her. She who has been with however many different men. Okay, I'll go do this. I'll go marry Gomer, and we'll be a happy family. So he does. He marries her. And what does Gomer do? Gomer does what prostitutes do. She goes back out. And Hosea's like, oh, I mean, I kind of did it. And God says, go get her. Go back and get her. But she, whoa. And again and again, God teaches in all of Scripture the lesson of what it looks like for us to be loved by this great love, that we are broken, destitute people. We are unlovable, and yet God sets his great love on us. Now, we've got to be honest, this word predestination, it's a big one, right? And it's tough, and we're not just going to plow through these things and say, deal with it, here we go, you know? We've got to wrestle with this because it's, it's big, right? I mean, we've got some resistance in us to this concept. I mean, we might be okay with the thought that God makes kingdoms rise and fall. Well, yeah. I mean, he needs to be in charge of kingdoms. Yeah, I mean, God has to. Otherwise, everything would be chaotic. So obviously, God makes kingdoms rise and fall. And, you know, we might be fine with God ruling the seasons or having control of the weather. You know, that might be a little tough when, like, the tornado hits that town and not that town. It's a little tough, but we're still like, all right, I get it. Somebody's got to control the weather. Otherwise, you know, it'll all be bad. And we might not even mind the fact that God hardened the heart of Pharaoh, because that dude was a jerk, right? Or even Judas, right? That there was God's involvement in that whole thing to bring about his plan. Like, all right, well, I mean, he was an idiot. So obviously God 
had to kind of do something with him to make stuff happen. But we struggle and often balk against the idea that God chooses those whom he saves. I've got four ideas for some of our resistance, some of the reasons we might resist this idea. Number one is that we often view ourselves as autonomous, right? We often think, well, I am the captain of my own destiny. I mean, it's out there, right? This is how we view ourselves and God help us in our country that celebrates independence to such a significant degree that we are encouraged in this idea of autonomy. And so we move through life thinking, I am the captain of my own destiny. We have this heightened concept of the free will of mankind, and we've, we've elevated that idea so high above any other existing paradigm so as to eliminate the possibility of God truly being all-powerful and all-wise and in control of everything. And yet, the Scriptures hold simultaneously the truth of God's sovereign rule over all things, not just kingdoms, not just weather, not just bad situations, but me and you. The Scriptures hold the truth of God's sovereignty over all things, and it holds the truth that we are personally responsible for our decisions. And Scripture holds these both out as true, and the tension between them is simply there. And often we don't get the explanation of how does that happen. But we know somehow that all of our decisions are still our responsibility and that somehow God is sovereign over all of our decisions. These are not uh, incompatible realities. They exist within the truth of Scripture. And they, they confront this idea that we are autonomous. They confront this idea that we view ourselves often as the only one who can determine our own fate. There's another thing that kind of is tough for us, and that's just, just, it's just simply hard to understand, especially that sovereignty and responsibility piece. It's just simply difficult to grasp. And this is one of the reasons why faith is a step beyond what, more, what humans are even willing to do on their own. That faith takes us to a place where we have to admit that something that we cannot quite completely wrap our minds around might actually be true. Because we, in our own autonomy, in our own pride, we think that things can only be true if I know everything about them. And so faith takes us to a place that we're not always willing to go ourselves. There's a third thing we struggle with, and this one I totally get, and, and I, I wish we had a, an entire sermon to jump right into only this issue, and that is that we struggle with the existence of evil if God is, in fact, sovereign over all things. If God is sovereign, why is there evil? That's a huge and difficult question. It might be a great discussion point this week as we gather in city groups together. The power of God, why can't it just overwhelm evil? Why can't he just erase it all? And the scriptures say that he will erase it all, but that there is a time and there is a place for that to happen, and it is not yet. 
And number four, I think this is probably one of the biggest struggles for me, is that ultimately we don't think that we are so bad off that something as drastic as God doing everything to save us is even necessary. Right? We struggle with the idea of God choosing us because that means that there are those that He hasn't chosen, and we don't like that. We don't think it's fair, right? Because really, aren't people for the most part good? Aren't people for the most part okay? Can't they do something to help themselves out? Which is a question that reveals ultimately that I think I'm good. We don't want to buy the fact that all people are hopeless and helpless without God because it means that I am hopeless and helpless without God. And that's a gigantic pill to swallow. And it can go down bitter because we like to think we have something powerful in us and good in us. When really, when it comes to God's saving work, it is all on Him and not on us at all. The bottom line is this, we walk through the Bible like we're doing with Ephesians so that we can teach what the Bible teaches. We're dealing with this because it's in the Bible. I mean, the words are not minced here. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Christ Jesus according to to the purpose of his will. Over and over and again and again, the scriptures show us the particular glory of God's sovereignty over all things. He's utterly sovereign. He's sovereign over the kingdoms of the world and the weather and the seasons. He's sovereign over all of the events in history. His sovereignty extends over the stars in the cosmos and over every single bird that falls from the sky. He sends the rain and he withholds the wind. He works all things according to the counsel of his will, verse 11. And he is sovereign over every single one of the hearts of all mankind. Bottom line, this is God we're talking about, right? This is no mere man, right? This is not some short-term ruler who's in charge for a little bit. This isn't the creative, a created being with some kind of added superpowers thrown in. God is not the product of the minds of men. This is the eternal, self-sufficient, holy, unlimited, timeless, and all-powerful, glorious God. There has never been anything like Him, nor will there ever be anything that compares to Him. He is singular, independent, unique, and perfect. We don't quite have what it takes to fully grasp the grandeur of God because we've got nothing in our world like Him. And so for us to declare His sovereignty is for us to say there is something beyond compare. And yet, as Paul says, God decided to look down on the world that He created, the world which flipped Him the proverbial middle finger, and He said, I will love you, and I have chosen to adopt you 
from amidst and among the darkness of the world. And verse 6 says that he did this to the praise of his glorious grace. Don Carson articulates it well, saying that God says of us, I have set my affection on you from before the foundation of the universe. Not because you are wiser or better or stronger than others, but because in grace I chose to love you. You are mine and you will be transformed. Nothing in all creation can separate you from my love given through Jesus Christ. First John 4, 9 and 10 says that we love because he first loved us. That this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and he gave his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is what Paul means when he says, in love, God predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. And what's more is that this adoption as sons brings with it aspects and rights of the heavenly son, which by no means should belong to us if we were left to ourselves. Paul goes on to say that in him we have redemption and in him we have an inheritance. He says in him we have redemption in verse 7 and in verse 11 it says in him we have obtained an inheritance. And this in him phrase is one of Paul's favorite phrases in Ephesians. In him or through him or in Christ or in the Lord Jesus Christ, this, this concept for Paul is, is it's the banner under which all of this flies. He says this in just our passage alone in verse 3, 9, 6, 4, 7, 11, and 13. It's how many times he says in him or through him or in Christ. Again and again, Paul declares that these things are true because they are true for Jesus. And since he came for us, they are now true for us. Let's look at the redemption aspect first, and then we'll look at the inheritance before we wrap up. Ephesians 1, 7, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This choosing of God to bring redemption was a decision laid before the foundations of the world that cost God his own son. The redemption comes through what? Through the blood of Jesus. The only way that Jesus, or the only way that God could save any of us is by sacrificing his only son. From the beginning of the establishment of the world, the lamb was slain. In order for us to be redeemed, he had to spill his own blood. He lavished his grace upon us so that we might be called his own. To make us his own, God had to give up his own. It was a costly move. It was a work with calculation before it. If they will be washed clean, they must be washed clean by the blood of my pure and perfect son. And so the work of God to make a people for himself is a work that required sacrifice. 
Show me any other God who did that. In order to bring us into his family, he had to lower himself so low that he became killable. That human beings were able to touch him and reject him and betray him and torture him and hang him and murder him. That's the extent to which God went in order to bring the redemption of our lives. And in Ephesians 1.11, Paul proclaims this glorious truth about what it is that we've been given in Jesus Christ. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. In case we missed it before, Paul says the exact same thing again. He did this work. He chose us. He predestined us for this glory. And then he shows the picture of what he had to do in the two different peoples that were separated because of his work in history past. He brought those two peoples together. It says that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be the praise of his glory. That was the Jew. That was the one who was the child of Abraham. Paul says, because he was a Jew, Paul says God brought us in finally and ultimately into his great family, not just through Abraham, but through Jesus, so that we might be to the praise of his glory. And also you, when you heard the word of, his, of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him. He says you too who previously were not a part of this family, you too who previously were not called the sons and the daughters of God, now are being called the sons and the daughters of God. That that unity has come because of Jesus and his work alone that he has called both Jew and Gentile his adopted daughters and sons to the praise of his own glory. And in this, we have obtained an inheritance. Paul spoke in verse 3 of spiritual blessings in Christ and he repeats the same refrain with a different word here, that inheritance that is ours that there is a greater glory waiting for us and that it's not ours because we are strong enough. It's not ours because we are good enough. It's not ours because we were worthy enough. It's ours because God in eternity past set his affections on us. There's a reason the word adoption is used by Paul. Right? Because like, let's look at parents and kids, right? If you're a parent, you have a son, and you come to that son, and you're like, listen, boy, I'm working hard, making some money, trying to put some of it away, and here's what I need you to do. I need you to never sass mouth your mom. I need you to get A's in every class. I don't care if you're more prone to English. Nonsense. You got to get math grades A too. You got you to ace it all, Right? I need you to be a stellar athlete and an amazing musician, all right? I need you to just totally kill it, right? Never be arrested, never break the law, never break curfew. Don't you ever dare wake up late, 
You better be on time to everything. If you do all this, then some of that money that I'm setting aside for you, I'll help you go to college. And when I die, I'll leave some of it to you. But if you mess up on any of these rules, I'm going to change my will, child. And I'm going to give all the money to your sister. All right? So you better do good. When you're perfect, you'll get my inheritance. Right? What a wicked father. <laughs> what a complex the son will have. What an utterly anxious, burdened child that kind of parenting would leave. And even worse, if you're an adoptive parent, if you're going to walk into the adoption process and come to, you know, maybe a few possible children to adopt, and you walk into the room and there's a couple kids and you pull out a big whiteboard, and right in the front of all of them, you're full-on grading these kids. You're like, all right, you're Bobby. Yeah, you're kind of ugly. You're a little short. What's your name? Susie. Okay, I don't know. I only like this color kid, and you're that color. Well, we'll see. Uh, what's your name? Alan. Okay, well, I don't know about you. Okay, you know, and, and it's like, well, I'll pick one of you, but I'm only going to love you if as soon as you get into your, our home, you attach to your mother immediately. All right, so none of this, none of this stressful stuff. We, we're not going to go for that in our house. Perfect obedience, no crying. You'll tell us when you're hungry and not scream on the floor. You'll just use your words every time, right? And when it comes to school, same thing I told the other kid, grade A, all the time. If you do these things, dear child, I will love you. I'll truly call you my son. I'll introduce you in public as my child. If, and I've got this money set aside that when I die, it'll be yours as long as you perform. As long as you're boastworthy. As long as you give me all the positive Facebook posts and none of the negatives, then I'll call you mine. You have an inheritance set before you in eternity future because of God's decision in eternity past to love you before you were lovable. And I know myself, I'm still not lovable. I know some of you are. Right? God's work to save you has nothing to do with you and your performance. The inheritance is yours now. And what happens when you know that all of your future is secure? I don't know if we've got any trust fund babies. If not, I haven't met you yet. But like, I don't know if we, but that changes everything about how I look at today. My dad was not a rich man. He did not leave me millions my dad loved me, and he built me, and he cared for me, but he didn't leave me millions. And even still, I know that everything I need is taken care of. Can you fathom the idea that you'll never 
have a care in the world? What would that do to your life if you knew that the pockets were deep and never-ending? This is the truth of spiritual blessing in Jesus. The pockets are deep and are never-ending. You cannot lose what God has given you. He chose you from eternity past before you had the chance to choose Him. That's the kind of love that He has set on you, and He has adopted you out of the muck and the mire and the brokenness of your history. He has grabbed you and said, you're mine, not if, but now. You're mine. And I'll never quit. My love will never fade. The inheritance is as sure as the gift of the Holy Spirit in your heart right now. To the praise of His glorious grace. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. The end of that is peace and rest for our weary souls. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we hallow your name this morning as glorious and praiseworthy, as great and powerful and eternal, as all-knowing and all-wise. And in love, you have set your affection on us. You have made us children when we were enemies. You have called us your heirs when we were on the gutters in the streets and fatherless and alone. You have rescued us out of the wreckage of sin. You have set us in high places in Christ with an inheritance that will not fade. It is not expiring, and it is unconditional. God, we know not of unconditional love in this world, but you have given it to us. And it is so sweet to know that the love of God is ours because of the work of Jesus Christ and the plan of God the Father from eternity past. God, would you comfort our hearts? Would you press in on some of our struggles and doubts? And God, would you work your will in us to build a confidence in the work of God, not in ourselves, not in our duties, but in the finished work of Jesus Christ for us. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And in him we have obtained an inheritance. We rejoice in this and we thank you, Father. In Christ's name, amen.